Well, the tax and spend liberals have really dug America into a pretty deep hole, haven't they? More runaway government, more runaway spending. Can we afford four more years of this? There is no sugarcoating it for the Democrats. They've lost the momentum. And in large part, it's due to continued voter anxieties about the economy. Released a report today warning if the far left gets its way, the economy will in fact crater. Prices are climbing faster than their pay. By a wide margin, Americans say the economy has gotten worse since Biden took office. Voters have bought it for generations. Republicans are the tax cutters, friends to business, fiscally responsible, good negotiators, strong on the economy. Democrats are the tax and spend, big government, handouts to the undeserving, irresponsible ones, economy wreckers. Yet by actual economic metrics, Democrats have been far more successful on the economic front than their opponents for decades. So why do so many voters have it twisted? And what can we do about it? In an election year where polls show Biden and Trump neck and neck, there is one spot where Trump consistently bests Biden, the economy. Indeed, around the time of this recording, NBC News had voters favoring Republicans nearly two to one on handling the economy. And when voters are asked what issue they care most about, yeah, the economy. With our freedoms on the line and our rights to cast our votes and have them counted in peril, Democrats must shift how they're perceived on the economy. And that's going to take both changing our talk and, more importantly, taking actions that back up that rhetoric. To close out this season, we're embarking on a two-part exploration on how to do just that. In this episode, we're examining who actually wins the Managing the Economy contest, why Democrats can't get the credit they merit, and the fundamental pivot they must make to win over the working-class voters they covet. Then, next week, we'll look at some big wins on the progressive economic campaign front and see what lessons Democrats can learn from these efforts by and for the working class. People say to me, you gotta be crazy. How can you sing in times like these? Don't you read the news? Don't you know the score? How can you sing when so many others grieve? By way of a reply, I say a fool such as I. Who sees his song as somewhere to begin? Welcome back to Words to Win By. I'm Anat Shanker Osorio. I develop and test and deploy political messaging to help candidates, organizers, and activists around the world win progressive victories. We're talking economics today. I'm Brad DeLong. I'm a professor of economics at the University of California, Berkeley, where I teach economic history. 
and I was, during the Clinton administration, a Deputy Assistant Secretary of the U.S. Treasury for Economic Policy. So there's a common notion that Republicans are, quote, better on the economy than Democrats. Why? Where did that idea come from? The economists really do not understand this. (laughs) That ever since Herbert Hoover became president in 1928, The times when Republicans have the presidency are times when things go substantially wrong. You know, with Herbert Hoover had the Great Depression, which he had no idea how to deal with. Nixon brought us the oil crises and the inflation of the 1970s. Reagan, I think, vastly underperformed and that his policies were incoherent. And so they started the process of draining America of the funds it needed to invest to keep productivity growth going. George W. Bush, this idea that we ought to deregulate housing finance and not pay any attention to what was going on in housing finance brought us the worst downturn since the Great Depression itself. Donald Trump massively underperformed as well by starting a trade war with China with absolutely no idea about how to win with that was quite destructive and managing to pass perhaps the worst tax cut ever. It was supposed to boost investment in America, but all it did was produce a huge amount of stock buybacks. What tends to go better when Republicans are in charge is that the rich get richer and the rich tend to have a big megaphone and lots of people willing to talk them up. But otherwise, the numbers seem to show that the Democrats have an amazing edge in terms of how well the economy performs. How are you defining the economy performing well, performing badly? What are the indicators that you're using to draw those conclusions? People should be getting jobs, right? That unemployment should be low or at least falling. You know, incomes should be rising and the income distribution should not be going, you know, completely haywire in the sense that control over valuable pieces of monopoly property or valuable choke points in the economy should not produce fortunes that are extravagantly, extraordinarily large, leaving everyone else feeling small. Um, And I think those three things are kind of it from an economist for how it performs. Real people, though, tend to ask a fourth. And when I plan my budget, I need to be able to buy what I plan to buy at about the prices that I expected to buy. And when that doesn't happen, when there's inflation going on, you know, people as a whole get very, very upset because they think the people running the economy have mismanaged it by breaking their contract with them. How does the public sort of make sense of how the stock market is doing and use that to evaluate whether the economy is, quote, doing well or doing badly? Somehow, American finance has managed to persuade the TV news media and also the business pages that you know the stock market is how you keep score for the economy, which you know ain't really true, right? It's how you keep score on that part of the economy which flows as profits to owners of businesses, and those are very different than things like median earnings, you know, or the unemployment rate, you know, how easy it is to get jobs. Even on this questionable measure of economic success, Democrats still outperform Republicans on bringing returns to Wall Street. 
There's another dubious indicator for the economy that for all the airtime it receives has little impact on Americans' wallets. Our national debt stands at over $33 trillion. A trillion dollars every six months. It's terrible for America. President Biden is clearly trying to run out the clock and create a debt crisis. That's irresponsible. You can't keep raising the debt ceiling. It's like having your child have a credit card and year after year after year, you keep reaching the limit and you just keep expanding it. But for all their deficit hawkery performance art, every Republican since 1980 has increased the national debt. Democrats in that time frame have always decreased it, not only at the expense of Americans, but impugning government and thus their own image in the process. And even with all that, Democrats are still viewed as busting open the government cash box and then Oprah-style gleefully handing out all the contents. Then there's the almighty GDP, which politicians across the aisle love to talk about, like it's the definitive proof of American economic success. Democrats have a stronger track record here, too, but it doesn't matter. Because obsessing over growing GDP leaves out how that wealth gets generated and who gets to claim those new riches. Once upon a time, the economy doing better meant Americans were, too. When the pie got bigger, most everyone, especially white folks, got more to eat. But today, as Karen Petro wrote in the New York Times, GDP may look robust, but 64% of households live paycheck to paycheck from time to time. Petro's analysis shows that 90% of Americans are sharing only a third of the nation's wealth. And over the last 40-odd years, Paychecks for Americans at the median income went up by less than a third of GDP. The wealthiest 1%, however, saw to it that their earnings rose twice as fast as GDP through a whole array of rigging the rules to avoid paying what they owe in taxes and wages. So GDP growth doesn't translate as it should to meaningful gains for the majority of Americans. But, as Brad pointed out, There are plenty of economic measures that do squarely impact people's economic outcomes, namely jobs and wages. As it turns out, in the modern era, the six presidents with the fastest job growth rates were Democrats. And since 1962, the growth rate of average weekly earnings has increased under Democratic presidents and fallen under Republican ones. And yes, wages outpaced inflation for nearly all of 2023, for the first time since 2020. But the Times reports that as of November 2023, everyday goods like groceries were up 26% over pre-pandemic levels, and housing prices were 47% higher. Add to this the fact that Americans spend more and get less for healthcare than any other country. All this and the media's almost comical refusal to tell a positive economic story about Biden, and you get voters across the demographic spectrum feeling grouchy about all things economic and the people they presently blame for their hardships, Biden and other Democrats. 
So while Democrats trounce Republicans across economic metrics, voters still credit those robber barons with being better on the economy. Indeed, political pundits have named the chasm between Biden's economic performance and the grades voters assigned to it the Vibe Session. In 2012, I covered this in a book I wrote called Don't Buy It, The Trouble with Talking Nonsense About the Economy. To my dismay, lots of what I diagnosed then as bad messaging still makes up standard Dem talking points now. Today, I'll be sketching out three pillars behind why Democrats keep failing to persuade voters to trust them on money matters. Pillar one. The way we usually talk about the economy gives the opposition the advantage. Consider common expressions for the economy. This economy is on life support right now. How do you measure the health of the economy? President Biden's plans to revive the pandemic hit economy. Life support, health of the economy, revive. These expressions suggest the economy is a living being, capable of surviving on its own outside of dire emergencies. Just like you wouldn't want someone helping you breathe or digest, this implies that government regulation is a meddlesome intervention that keeps the market from doing what it does best, running itself. Worse yet, we sometimes render the economy a god to whom we must sacrifice in order to ensure the world does not come crashing down around us. We speak of how our policies grow the economy and help the economy when really it ought to be serving us, not the other way around. This brings us to our second deeply problematic pillar. Not only do we imply that the economy is a personified being or deity, long-standing American mythology of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps tells us that if you're struggling, it's your own fault. And then Republicans exploit and take this a step further, telling us that the purpose of the economy is to reward the good and punish the bad. Nowhere is this more prevalent than destructive views on taxes. Well, you know, the Republican view um, is generally that you need low taxes on the rich because if you tax them too much, they will stop being job creators. And so the idea is that America's rich need to be richer because otherwise they won't be entrepreneurial. And America's poor need to be poorer because otherwise they'll be moochers and slackers. That mindset probably sounds familiar. It's trickle-down economics. It's where the benevolent rich people, job creators, adjacent to that biblical creator in the sky, bestow upon us lowly folks the grand opportunity to work. And any attempts to thwart those creators or provide resources to the poor means you're punishing the makers and rewarding the takers. George W. Bush and some of his technocrats had, they felt like, a very good idea in the 2000s, which was people are moving towards cellular phones. You know, we should have a government program to get everyone a good but cheap cell phone because it's much cheaper to communicate with people via cell phone than to spend the, what, 40 cents for stamps and the dollar for the envelope and so forth to contact them. You know, by 2013 or so, Grover Norquist and company were calling this the Obama phone program. Obama is taking your hard-earned tax money and using it to buy black people phones. 
because he's for black people and not for you. As Brad just pointed out, this anti-government streak is brought to you by racism. That's our third pillar. Quite intentionally, Reagan's archetypal image of a welfare queen. She used 80 names, 30 addresses to collect food stamps, social security, veterans benefits for four non-existent deceased veterans husbands. Is a black woman, Linda Taylor. Never mind that the vast majority of welfare users are white. And furthermore, welfare is an absolutely essential part of a functional society. As with the Obama phone program, too many white Americans would rather have no phone program at all rather than waste money, allowing black people to have free ones. My colleague Heather McGee documents this in her best-selling book, The Sum of Us. Her go-to example is how white neighborhoods started closing public pools rather than integrate them. Democrats have also been known to blow these dog whistles in an attempt to rebuff accusations that they're giving handouts. And even when they're no longer repeating these tropes, they usually allow them to go unanswered, instead speaking only of colorblind economic concerns. Speaking of race is purportedly too polarizing— as we've discussed across past episodes, this is like handing people headphones where one side is blasting out a tirade of hate toward people of color, and there's no sound hitting the other ear. Further, Democrats all too often let the rich make out like bandits. See Wall Street profits under Democratic reign. Brad and I talked about how Barack Obama fell victim to these pitfalls when leading the U.S. through the 2008 financial crisis. You can blame Obama for the fact that the recovery from the Great Recession was so slow. But I think this was largely because Obama really wanted to be the president of Purple America and so was very interested in not going too far and not being too outlandish in terms of liberal economic policy. All this isn't just bad policy, it's bad politics. And it's sadly not new. For at least 50 years, Democrats have embraced neoliberalism, peddling the story that what's good for business is good for working people. But you cannot be the party of Jeff Bezos and the party of the Amazon Union because they are in fundamental opposition. Democrats used to know that and working-class voters were loyal to them for it. But once Democrats attempted to recast themselves as business-friendly, they helped hasten the demise of unions, lost their monopoly over working-class voters, and gave credibility to the idea that what you want from your politicians is to promote unfettered markets, something Republicans had already been claiming as their brand for years. So Democrats have a long-standing two-fold problem. One, they're talking about the economy in ways that lend credence to right-wing approaches. And two, their policies often aren't helping the voters they claim to be for. Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On the amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means. 
specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. There's one Democrat who famously seemed to solve this economic messaging muddle. Government just isn't working for the hardworking families of America. We need fundamental change, not more of the same. That's why I've offered a plan, a real plan, to get our economy moving again. We talked to someone who had a front row view of how this message came to be. I am Celinda Lake. I am a pollster and strategist. Celinda is far too humble to truly tout her credentials, but she helped shape the messaging of both the Biden and Clinton campaigns. N is one of the world's most generous colleagues and fantastic friends. So let's lay some groundwork. Unfortunately, sometimes we have to live in a reality-based world. I try not to, but like, you know, it creeps in. And in the reality-based world that you very much inhabit, where you're constantly in communication with voters and would-be voters, uh, Democrats are traditionally viewed as not as good on the economy. When did we first start to see that trend in polling? So we've been up and down on the economy for a while, and uh, the gap is really big right now. And Trump accentuated the gap, whether we want to admit it or not. But it started back in the 70s, really. One of the early correlates of not being as good on the economy was a perceived to be too weak. It wasn't a question of being perceived to be anti-jobs or something like that. But people have always believed that there's a certain muscularity, a certain toughness that is required to be good on the economy. You know, with Jimmy Carter, who now is, of course, one of the presidents we all admire the most of anybody, but at the time didn't get reelected because he was perceived, unfortunately, as weak rather than strong. And so that has been a persistent up and down thread. Ronald Reagan really emphasized morning in America. One of the things you say, Anat, that I think has contributed to our problems is we always start with problems, not solutions. And one of my favorite quotes from you is, Martin Luther King didn't start his speech out with, I have a problem, uh, which just says it all. But every progressive tends to start their speech out with, no, I don't just have one. I have 12 or 13 if you can stand it that long. Republicans are seen to be better as business. And for a long time, our problem has been that people knew what Republican economics is. They didn't necessarily like it, but they could definitely say what it was. It was low taxes, low government spending, help business, uh, and business would create jobs. And they didn't necessarily agree with that. They didn't necessarily think they would benefit that much from it, but they could express it. Uh, we started doing focus groups in the 90s where voters were, we would ask voters, what's democratic economics? And they would be blank stares, like, I can't tell you what it is. Or they'd say things facetiously like welfare for all, a handout for all. So let's go back in time for a moment to the Clinton campaign and to specify, I mean, Bill Clinton. So obviously, 1992 campaign, famous, famous James Carville quip that we hear over and over. It's the economy, stupid. What did he mean by that? And how did that carry out in their campaign strategy? And what's your assessment of it? So the way it came about was we were doing uh, focus groups five nights a week from May 1 till October 31st. And I was in charge of that. And it was like one of the greatest experiences I've ever had. 
And we wanted to run on a lot of issues. We wanted to run on family issues and child care and family leave. We wanted to run on health care. We wanted to run on education because the governor of Arkansas, President Clinton at the time, had a, a, a record on education. And every night I would report back to James, well, this tested okay, but the voters kept saying, it's the economy, it's the economy. And finally I came back and he said, come into Little Rock, I want you to come back, I want to figure this out. And so we went over everything and then he went to the chalkboard and he said, okay, I get it. It's the economy, stupid. And that's what we're going to run on with a little healthcare sprinkled in. And uh, then we moved ads aggressively to uh, things like, you know, I may not have been to Moscow, Russia, but I have been to Moscow, Idaho, that we need good paying jobs in this country, that we need um, investment in raising the minimum wage and investment in good paying jobs, and really talked about wages and the benefits that jobs pay. That fast forward did into the administration. The administration was very aggressive about leading with job creation. And the president used to go around saying, I've created 400,000 jobs, I've created 600,000 jobs. And as with President Biden, it was not resonating. Our numbers were declining, not improving. And so we went into these focus groups and, and I did the focus group. I started out with, let me show you a clip, what's your reaction to it? And I showed the clip that said, we created 600,000 jobs. And this woman in our focus group stood up and said, yeah, and I've got three of them. Can you tell the president that? And the great thing about Bill Clinton is he was very responsive to people. So we just sent that clip back. And the next day he started with, I've created 600,000 jobs, but it's not good enough until you can get a job that you can, one job that you can raise a family on with good benefits for yourself and your kids. You, you mentioned just now that at first people were like, I don't buy it or the same thing with Biden, right? Were there ebbs and flows in terms of public opinion, not just for Clinton himself, but for Democrats in that era where maybe there were some highs and voters were giving Democrats more credit on, quote, the economy? Well, here's the issue. We have never won a presidential election since we've had polling data where we are not even or ahead on the economy. That's what makes these numbers so serious. Yes, in 2008, we were ahead on the economy with the first Obama election. In 2012, for a long period of time, we were behind Romney. People thought Romney was a businessman. He'd run the Olympics. He would be better on the economy. The economy wasn't in that great a shape. Yes, uh, Obama and Biden had bailed us out of the auto deal, but they'd given more bailouts to banks and to people. A lot of people had suffered housing losses. So there have been two strategies. There's been asserting the positive case. There have been times where we also took away the credibility of the other person. So in the case of Romney, when he said at that fundraiser that he wasn't going to care about the 46%, that was caught on tape. It was put into ads and voters said, yeah, he's for the economy, but for who? Uh, who's going to benefit from this economy? Romney's numbers plummeted because he was perceived to be a rich guy who probably would only wa uh, watch out for rich guys and would think as long as everybody on Mars's vineyard had a, a you know was making a lot of money that everybody else was doing okay too, which wasn't the case. Similarly, with Joe Biden, we pulled even on the economy at, at the time of the election in 2020. We weren't ahead, but we were even, and we kept pressing, pressing, pressing on that. We've also had this interesting research that we did where we asked people 
if, you know, we're not going to tax anybody but the rich, what do you think is rich? And people said $100,000 is rich. Then we said the Democrats aren't going to raise taxes on the rich. What do you think is rich? And people said $250,000. And we said, why did you just raise it? And they said, well, Democrats keep coming down and getting us, so we're going to put it high enough so they don't come down and get us. In that example Celinda just gave us, you can see how the label of tax and spend liberal twists Democratic leaders into knots. It's become this scarlet letter that they refute and obscure at every corner, and it results in disastrous policy. Clinton eventually contorted to appease Republican tormentors when he, quote, seized the opportunity to end welfare as we know it. What do you think the impact of that was? I mean, forget the impact on actual humans. That's that's a very important conversation for a different podcast moment. But just in the space that we're talking in, in terms of voters' perceptions of Bill Clinton, of Democrats, of the role of government and what it ought to be doing. It came out of two things. It came out of the tax and spend narrative. It came out of also a division in the team about how problematic was it to be perceived as, quote unquote, a liberal or not. And it came out of the fact that one of the most impressive accomplishments for him was the welfare reform that he had done in Arkansas. So he was already really primed to want to talk about that and take that nationally. I personally think that was that it wasn't necessary and that it shouldn't have been done. Um, moreover, there are lots of things that improve your image, but uh, you don't do them because they're wrong and because they hurt too many people. And I think it was also a problem in that it undermined the entire sa social safety net. But people readily believe and particularly women, including white women and people of color and young people readily believe there are times when anybody could need help. And what we did when we said, and welfare as we know it, we impugned all kinds of government programs because then all they had to say was, well, that's welfare. And even if people had no idea what quote unquote welfare was, it's like my favorite stat, which I love to tell is, 50% of Americans don't know what socialism is, but 60% of Americans don't like it. God bless America. And as you and I know, uh, not voters are perfectly comfortable holding mutually contradictory views and usually deeply resent having it pointed out to them. Where do you feel like Democrats messaging around the economy has worked, not worked since Clinton? I think it's worked overwhelmingly on prescription drugs. I mean, we have the most conservative Republicans who don't realize they're supposed to be against regulating prescription drug prices. I think we have been very successful on the tax issue. Our biggest problem is progressives and Democrats don't realize how successful we've been. So we don't even realize how aggressive we can be and how much people are for investment in education right now, catching up, mental health, skills and job skill building, um, really, really, really strongly in that. I think the place we've been least successful is the inflation, rising costs, price gouging. And part of that is because uh, they were very aggressive about pinning it on us. We spent money too long. We didn't get it. Part of it was we did seem out of touch with it. We said, well, wait a minute. You got all these jobs. The prices are rising. And as one Latino male said in a focus group we did, what good is a $15 an hour wage if skirt steak costs $14 a pound? 
uh, and that people really weren't keeping up in something that was readily the kinds of things that they buy, and particularly the kinds of things that women buy, food and health care and housing. Here's the deep, irony-lined well Democrats have dug. When they were fully empowering union organizing, the working class, at least among whites, amassed enough power and money to become the self-supporting middle class. In an effort to appease the rich, Democrats stopped acting as a check on capital. Real wages shrunk and productivity gains went to the already wealthy, leaving more people needing government assistance. This opened Democrats up to the charge of giving handouts and bloating government. Every step of the way, in an effort to please all, they ended up pleasing none. In short, it's the neoliberalism, stupid. Which brings us to the present day and the Grand Canyon-sized chasm between how much Democrats have improved the economy by all objective measures and how little voters regard them for it. The Biden administration tried to shift perceptions by doing a victory lap. Guess what? Bidenomics is working. Bidenomics. 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 Our plan is working. It's working. Hoping to make fetch, by which I mean Bidenomics, happen. But as Celinda and I have seen in focus group after focus group, just telling someone there are more jobs when they are struggling to make ends meet and perhaps holding down more than one of those jobs, isn't compelling. It's off-putting. Over six months of 2023, my team helped conduct a series of in-depth studies with Way to Win and Celinda's firm, Lake Research Partners, among other researchers, on how Democrats can talk about economic issues far more effectively. The first principle. Don't talk in abstractions about what's better for the economy. That's where voters credit Republicans. In contrast, when we ask voters who is better for your family's economic well-being, they pick Democrats. The same goes for who they trust on growing the economy versus protecting cherished economic programs and caring about everyday people. Guess what matters more to actual voters? how they're doing, not how it's doing. This means Democrats need to describe things in terms of real lived experience. Food on the table, affordable prescriptions, child care your kid loves, not propping up a conversation about who loves the economy best. Second, tap into populism. It's live, it's hot, and it's mobilizing. Use it to draw a contrast with the opposition. Instead of just touting accomplishments and letting Republicans who voted against economic programs plaster cheesy smiles on at ribbon cuttings, we have to call out how MAGA Republicans have always let corporations screw over working people. Here's what that sounds like in an ad we made in partnership with Way to Win. Most families just want the freedom to make a good living and have a good life. But Republicans are focused on taking our freedoms away. From banning abortion to banning books, even making medicine more expensive. They're just making things harder. But President Biden, he's creating millions of good-paying jobs, lowering our everyday costs, 
and protecting our freedom to choose when to start a family. These same ideas are present in some newer ads for Team Biden, as Celinda and I discussed. They are talking about uh, real lived experience, and they are saying that we are working every day to make things better. They are not, they're, they're not victory laps, and victory laps are just a huge mistake. When you're saying, we voted for this, we fought for this, they took us to court, pharma took us to court, and we said, bring it on, uh, we're going to keep fighting on this. When we voted for this and we got only nine Republican votes or zero Republican votes on it, then I think when you have that contrast, you're better able to get credit for what you're good at. Yeah. I mean, amen. And let this be a strike down of the competing tendency, which we also see from Democrats, to tout how they passed XYZ with bipartisan support. And, you know, what's astounding when we see testing on those bipartisan ads, which is a thing that Democrats and Joe Biden in particular love to do, because I think they believe it gives them cover from the condemnation that they're spending too much money, that they're, you know, doing these outlandish, super lefty policies. It makes it look like, of course not. This is, you know, broadly popular. But instead, they're doing exactly what you said, which is allowing Republicans to claim credit for things which voters like, and they by and large kicked and screamed and fought tooth and nail to not have happened. And so why would you ever sort of lift up and laud your opposition? I mean, it's it's really, truly a mystifying uh, impetus. It's central to the dilemma. And it's one of the two reasons that are holding back the contrast. One reason is there is a certain group of thought that says you have to build up the positive before you can contrast. I, I don't actually buy into that. And then there is how can you be contrasting and be bipartisan at the same time? And so it's it's central to the dilemma we're in. How are you both going to say these MAGA Republicans are attacking the very basis of our nation, our freedoms, and also we promise to work with these people? I mean, that's a pretty confusing message. And so on that, on voting rights, on repro, on truth and education, on all of these things that are happening in our country... Where does focusing on the economy and on economic issues fit into that broader picture and that broader narrative? Really, really, really good question. So it turns out that that the voters we need to get, people of color and women, are perfectly capable of worrying about more than one thing at a time. In fact, we're quite good at it. It turns out that people think they fit together uh, very strongly in ways that you are indicating and of course, you're working on that, and we're I feel lucky to be working with you. But I think there is something under this umbrella of freedom to thrive and freedom for our families to thrive that includes both of these umbrellas. Let's just take the abortion issue. The abortion issue is strongest when we're talking about personal decision making. People still think this is one of the most economically important decisions you will ever make is whether and when to have children. Voters don't lead, to paraphrase Audre Lorde, single-issue lives, nor do we confront single-issue attacks. That's why, to move the needle on the economy, we can't just talk about the economy. What our new research shows is that some canards just really hold true. Elections are about the future, not the past, and denying people's feelings isn't a winning strategy in any conversation. This means that Democrats 
have to acknowledge people's present realities and talk about how their agenda will give people a better life, not merely tout their past accomplishments and uplift the nebulous idea of growing the economy. Abortion access, fair wages, clean air, child tax credits, to name a few, these are concrete issues where Democrats are already trusted more than Republicans. And they lead to tangible impacts for the average American family, unlike the GDP or the NASDAQ. A better life message lets us connect together personal economic issues and the whole panoply of things that matter to voters. All the while, we need to confront racist rhetoric. If we leave Republican dog whistles without rebuttal, they just burrow deeper into the American psyche. We must provide a clear origin story for people's malaise, economic and otherwise, that rebuffs opposition claims and positions Democrats as champions of a future that serves working Americans across races, places, and parties, recognizing and bolstering working people's lead role in this project. It's been called hot labor summer, strikes happening all over the state. This has really been a summer of solidarity, but also it's sending a signal around the country that we are about unionizing. Hundreds of people flowing in to be on this initial strike line. You can see it behind me. In the next episode, we're going to dive into the resurgent labor movement in the U.S. and the lessons it offers for walking the walk and returning to a time when voting Democratic was an integral part of working class identity. Words to Win By is a Wonder Media Network production. The show is produced by Carmen Borca Carrillo, Brittany Martinez, and Edie Allard. Our editor is Grace Lynch, with editorial support from Liz Brown and Lucy Jones. Endless gratitude to Alvin Starks and Andrew Maisel, without whom this podcast would not be possible. Our executive producers are Jenny Kaplan and me, Anat Shinker Osorio. Our theme music was written by T.R. Ritchie, produced and arranged by Dan Leone. To find out more about this and any of our episodes, go to wordstowinby-pod.com. If your words don't spread, they don't work. So please let others know and rate and review the show wherever you listen to your podcasts. A song is somewhere to begin To search for something worth believing in If changes are to come There are things that must be done And a song is somewhere to begin